0: Welcome to the College Park Church of Christ Sermon Series Podcast. This sermon was recorded at the College Park Church of Christ in the Conroe-Porter area. Join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks for studying the Word of God with us. Wonderful to be here with you once again. Appreciate each of you choosing to be in this place to worship together. As we open up God's Word, it's uh, uh, my prayer and hope that the things that we look uh, at together tonight would be beneficial and helpful to all of us, no matter where we are, uh, if we have been in the church a long time, or if we are not yet a member of the church, that we would consider seriously this topic of a case for the inspiration of the Bible, and looking at both internal and external evidences that I believe can show us that the scriptures really are more than just a book written by people, but that they are books that were inspired by the Word of God, and that he had Men and women write these scriptures down so that all generations, including you and I, would have the word of God to read and to live by. And so this is part two of our series. Uh, In part one, we studied about manuscript evidence, and we talked about the textual reliability of scripture. And talked about how that, contrary to some arguments that uh, the Bible's translation over the centuries is like the game of telephone, that it's not, that we can trust that the words that we're reading on the page today in our Bibles are, have been accurately transmitted throughout the centuries and are, are essentially the same words that were written just in a different language two and 3,000 years ago. Today, we wanna to continue that discussion by looking at, is the Bible really prophetic? And so we wanna introduce that um, in just a moment, but we'll kinda of look at this roadmap. So in part one, we looked at, is it textually reliable? So tonight we're looking at the prophetic aspects of the Bible, and then our next three sessions are going to talk about science, history and archaeology, and then the consistency and power of the message that the Bible presents. So that's kind of the roadmap for what we're going to look at. So I want to introduce this idea of prophecy, and is the Bible really prophetic? Well, actually reading a passage out of Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 through 24. And in this context, Isaiah is talking to idols and idol worshipers, and he's challenging them. And he says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So as I believe that this is God inspiring Isaiah to write, God is challenging these false idols and those who worship these false idols and saying, look, if these idols really are God's, they should be able to do some different things. They should be able to talk to us all about things that have already come to pass. They should be able to talk to us about things that haven't yet come to pass and be predictive and prophetic about what's coming in the future. They should be able to decimate and bring terror and commit action. And essentially Isaiah is saying at the end of this story, you're nothing, you're false, you're not God. But one of those attributes that he mentions that that he puts to the test of is this idol God is the ability to predict or prophesy about the future. These idols obviously can't do that, but the one true God of heaven who created all things, if he truly has created all things and is outside of time, then he would be able to predict and prophesy what is to come in the future. Now, here's the argument of the Bible skeptic. There's a man by the name of Farrell Till. He passed away in 2012, but previous to that time, he was the editor of the Skeptical Review, uh, where he uh, was very anti-Christianity and and Bible. uh, In a lot of his articles, one of those articles was called The Prophecy Farce, where he talks about this idea of prophecy. And he says, what about all the prophecy fulfillments? Biblicists almost always ask this question when their belief in biblical inerrancy is challenged. No doubt those who ask the question sincerely believe that the prophecy fulfillment is irrefutable proof that the Bible was divinely inspired. But in reality, the question reflects a naive view of the Bible for which no credible evidence exists. And Mr. Till, like other Bible skeptics throughout time, have looked at the scriptures and they've found reason to make this claim that there really is no prophecy in scripture, that there's no credible evidence that the Bible really is prophetic. And so I wanna change that tonight. I wanna show you from external sources how we can see that there really is a lot of fulfilled prophecy that the only way it's possible for the Bible to have known that or the, the writers of the Bible to have written that down is that some supernatural force, in this case, I believe God, had revealed that to them. For we know mankind does not have the ability to look into the future so if at the conclusion of this study we come to the reasonable conclusion that the bible truly is prophetic i would ask you to consider how that's possible if god is not at the source now why is prophecy fulfillment important it's important for several reasons but primarily because if the bible is not actually prophetic we would have to deny and remove more than a quarter of the scriptures including many of the words of jesus walter kaiser who's a hebrew scholar He said, so important is prediction to the very nature of the Bible that it is estimated that it involves approximately 27% of the Bible. God certainly is the Lord of the future. Now, this doesn't mean that 27% of the scriptures that you and I read today in 2022 are prophetic towards our future. It means that about 27% of the scriptures at the time in which they were penned were prophetic towards something in that future or their future based on their time frame. Okay, so... Why is prophecy fulfillment important? Because a quarter of the Bible is prophetic. And so if you can prove that all of those really aren't prophecies and maybe the writers didn't really write them when they said they wrote them and it's all just been a big construct, it's all fake and nothing's real, then you and I would want to know that, right? We would want to be able to look in history and know that these things are not true, but what we find in reality in examining the evidence is the opposite, is that there is a lot of evidence that shows that these writers really did right in the timeframes that they did and they wrote of a prophetic nature. So I wanna share a few of those with you. One of those is found in Isaiah. Now, Isaiah's discussion of false gods and, and testing those gods on the basis of whether or not they could prophesy into the future, that culminates into a prophecy that God himself is gonna make through Isaiah three chapters later in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. So a little bit of a background on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah himself, so it's claimed in several places in the book, in about 740 to 690 BC, okay? So about 700 years before Christ, give or take, this is when Isaiah uh, is supposed to have written this book. Now, Isaiah correctly predicted in this passage that the Persian king Cyrus would give a decree to allow the Jewish people to go rebuild their temple. And we see this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. Isaiah names the man. He says, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to thy temple, thy foundation shall be laid. All right, so Isaiah in 700 BC is saying there's gonna be a guy named Cyrus who makes a decree that the Jews are gonna be able to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Well, when did Cyrus the Great rule? He didn't rule until 538 to 530 BC. So about 175 years after Isaiah, and after Isaiah made this prophecy. Now, in another book, in Ezra, we see the fulfillment of this decree actually come to pass, and Ezra records for us in Ezra 1, 2, and 3, which Ezra was written, of course, during this time frame, that thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem, all right? Now, history records that the royal decree went forth in the year 538 BC, at which time nearly 50,000 Jews returned to their homeland. So here's our choice, all right? We've got a supposed prophet that lived 700 BC that has made a prediction or prophecy that there's gonna be a guy named Cyrus 175 years later who's gonna come onto the scene, he's gonna make a decree that the Jews are gonna go back home to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now, this is exactly what we see come to pass 175 years later. So if you're a skeptic of the Bible, you're gonna to try to prove that the book of Isaiah wasn't really written in 700 BC. Because if you can show, for example, that it was written in 500 BC, then Cyrus would have already made that decree and it's just all false. It's history at that point, it's not prophecy and it's just pretending to be prophecy. And that's exactly what skeptics do. So due to the prophecies contained within Isaiah, most skeptics will say that the book of Isaiah was actually written by two or three different authors in different time periods. So they'll say Isaiah wrote the first 39 chapters in around around 700 BC, but then someone else, a second author wrote the next 66 chapters, or some will even break the, the last 26 chapters into two groups and say there were two additional authors in different time frames. Okay, and the reason that they do this in part is because Isaiah chapter 44, the prophecy we just read falls in this section. So they'll say Isaiah wrote the first 39, but by the time we get to that Cyrus prophecy and prediction, it's actually an author that lived about 540, 538 BC, contemporary of Cyrus, of when Cyrus is ruling around the time when he would have made that decree. And then it's written as if it was prophetic. And then some will break down the last 10 chapters and say it was written even later. Okay, so how do we know if that's true or not? Well, I want to share with you a couple of things that uh, there's a man by the name of James Rockford. And I found uh, his, his evidence very enlightening. And so I just want to share some, uh, some quick things related to, to what he found. James Rockford is an author and a Christian apologist, holds a master's degree in theological studies. Um, And he put together a defense of the one authorship of Isaiah. And that was the purpose of of this uh, article that he wrote. And so he lists seven reasons from history and from external sources why we can believe that Isaiah truly was written by Isaiah in 700 BC and not split between two or three different authors. One of those is that all of the New Testament writers and Jesus himself believed in one author. In fact, Jesus quoted Isaiah out of Isaiah chapter 61, verses one and two, and calls Isaiah the prophet, the author of that. Now, if the two or three author theory is correct, it wouldn't have been Isaiah, it would have been a second author or a third author. So then Jesus would either be wrong or lying. The rest of the New Testament writers, also in multiple places, quote Isaiah, the second half of that book, and say that it was Isaiah that wrote it. Now, you know, on the one hand, you could look at that and say, well, if they're willing to say that it wasn't Isaiah that wrote the book, they probably don't care that Jesus or the, where uh, the New Testament writers thought that it was, but don't think of them in the sense of Christians. Just think of them as historical sources. These are people that lived a whole lot closer than you and I do, that it was their history. They were Jews. It was their religious history books, and they all believed that it was one author that wrote it. Uh, the Jews also believed in one author. There's a second century BC document called Ecclesiasticus, which is a Jewish document. It holds to a single authorship. Uh, references Isaiah 61 and verse Three in that, and says Isaiah himself was the writer. So again, it's not just Jesus or the disciples; the Jews at large all consistently said this book was written by Isaiah, all of it, all sixty-six chapters. Number three, uh, he talks about manuscript evidence pointing to the same author in the book, and we talked about manuscript evidence last time, and I'll, I'll remind you we talked about the Great Isaiah Scroll that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that great Isaiah scroll is dated to within 100 to 300 BC. So we're talking only a few hundred years removed from when Isaiah wrote the book. And it was all what we would call 66 chapters in that one scroll. It wasn't separated into three different sections. It was one scroll, one book. And what's even more interesting than that to me is that chapter 40, verse one of Isaiah, which the skeptics will say that is the start of the second author that wrote it 200 years later, it is written on the last line of the same column of which chapter 39, the end of chapter 39 is written. In other words, it wasn't to the start of a new column. It's included as if it is one singular line of reasoning that continues on in that scroll. Number four, he talks about the fact that first Isaiah contains many fulfilled prophecies and for the sake of time, we just simply don't don't have the time to go through all of them. But the reality is just by making a break point and say, Isaiah 40 was written 200 years later, there are prophecies in Isaiah one through 39 that are fulfilled and you can show evidence of their fulfillment as well. Number five, he talks about the fact that Babylon is mentioned more in first Isaiah than in second Isaiah. So uh, the skeptic would say that this first period where Isaiah actually wrote was uh, the Assyrians were ruling at that time, were the major power. And then if 200 years later, a second author wrote this period, they would have been in the region of Babylon, having gone into captivity and and all of that. Um, And his point is that they actually talk more, Isaiah talks more about Babylon here than it even does here, which you would expect if this author was in Babylon, you would have a whole lot more references to Babylon and you just don't. The reality is that points to a consistent authorship. And then he also mentions uh, that the geography, the flora, the fauna in the second half of the book, all support one author. Uh, there are references to cedar and cypress and oak trees, which are native to Palestine, not to Babylon. So if that, again, if the author was writing 200 years later from the area of Babylon, you would expect some of those references to trees and stuff to be trees of that area, and it's not, uh, which supports the one author theory. And then number seven, he mentions that there's a unity of theology and language in the book. And throughout the book, you see the same themes occur Uh, Isaiah denounces bloodshed and violence in chapter one and chapter 59, injustice in chapter 10 and chapter 59, hypocrisy in uh, chapter 29 and chapter 58, sexual immorality in Isaiah one and Isaiah 57. And both the first half and second half of the book refer to God as the Holy One of Israel, which only happens five times outside of Isaiah and it happens twice in the book of Isaiah, once in the first half and once in the second. So the likelihood that this book was written by two or three different people, and that's how you can explain away this prophecy, is just very, very unlikely, and the evidence stacks against it. And then this is my favorite piece of evidence related to this. So Josephus, he was a Jewish historian who worked for the Romans uh, in the first century, recorded Jewish history. He said this, Thus says Cyrus the king, Since God Almighty has appointed me to be king of the habitable earth, I believe that he is that God which the nation of the Israelites worship. For indeed, he foretold my name by the prophets, and that I should build him a house at Jerusalem in the country of Judea. This was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. Did you know that when when Cyrus, the king of Persia, came onto the scene, he read the book of Isaiah and recognized that Isaiah was prophesying about him? And he said as much. Now, that tells me two things. One, that's just really cool. I mean, that Isaiah saw himself or that Cyrus saw himself in that. But two, it tells me that prophecy existed at the time when Cyrus came around, that it wasn't written later and added and pretended to be prophecy, that if Cyrus himself said, hey, I'm the guy, go back and build the temple, then obviously that prophecy existed before his time frame. And so that's what history tells us. That's what the external sources tell us about this prophecy of Isaiah, that he truly was prophetic. And how could Isaiah have been right about what was to come 200 years later? Only through the power of God, who inspired his writing. I'm going to look at another prophecy. This prophecy is found in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel uh, was a man who was captured as a young man, was raised in a foreign land, and he's going to get to know pretty closely a couple of different foreign kings and and become uh, a pretty important figure. But in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has this dream. And in this dream, he sees this statue. And whether or not it looked exactly like this, it would have been something like this. He sees this great statue made of different types of metals. The the head was made of gold. uh, The breast and arms were made of silver. The belly and thighs were made of brass. The legs were made of iron. And the feet were iron and clay. And then he saw this stone strike the feet of this statue and it crumbled to the ground. And then that stone grew into a, a giant mountain and filled the whole earth. And he had this dream, and it bothered him, and no one could tell him what the dream meant until Daniel came to him, and through God's power that he had given to Daniel, Daniel is able to interpret the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. So he tells Nebuchadnezzar, This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou art this head of gold, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Basically what Daniel says is, look, these different metals, they represent kingdoms. And you right now, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the king of Babylon. You're that head of gold. But after you, there's gonna come a second kingdom represented by the silver and then a third kingdom represented by the brass and then a fourth kingdom that's represented by the iron. And he says it's in the days of those kings, that fourth kingdom, that the God of heaven is going to establish an eternal kingdom spiritual kingdom that would never be destroyed now daniel's making a lot of prophecies about coming world events and kingdoms that are going to rule the world and how in the world could he get this right if he were mere man now in daniel chapter 8 we actually see who these second and third uh kingdoms are going to be it's declared to us again through prophecy who these next powers are going to be daniel 8 verse 3 says there stood before the river a ram which had two horns Verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And so Daniel is using these images of a ram and a goat to represent these kingdoms that are going to come. And then he explains who they are in verses 20 and 21. He says, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. That's gonna be the second kingdom. The Medes and the Persians are gonna rule after Babylon. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And so he says after Babylon is gonna come the Medes and the Persians. And during that Persian rule is when Cyrus is gonna make that decree. And then he says, after that's gonna come Greece. And he says, there's going to be a notable first king of the worldwide power, Greece. Now I bet you, Most of you know who that is. The first king of the worldwide power of Greece was Alexander the Great. He's the one that expanded the borders of the kingdom and kind of took over the known world at that time. Now, what's interesting, I don't have the quote up here, is that uh, there's also historical sources that say that Alexander the Great recognized himself in this prophecy. And he said, I'm that great horn between the eyes of that goat. I'm the guy, I'm that first king of Greece, and I'm gonna take over the world, and he did. So Daniel tells us who the next two kingdoms are going to be. What do we see in history? History records that in 539 BC, the empire fell to the Persians under Cyrus the Great at the Battle of Opus. Now Cyrus the Great of Persia took Babylon in 539, and the Medo-Persian Empire remained the sole power until about 331. So that's the second kingdom ruled until 331. When after 200 years, the Persian Empire fell to Alexander the Great in 331. So Alexander comes in, he conquers the Persian Empire, and the Grecian Empire would remain the world power until about 164 BC. At that point, Rome is going to take over as the primary power. The Roman Republic became increasingly involved in the affairs of Greece during this time, and in 168 BC, defeated Macedon at the Battle of Pydna. After this date, Greece steadily came into the influence of Rome. So between 168 to 164, there's a transition that happens into that fourth kingdom, which we know to be the Roman Empire. Now, if Daniel has correctly predicted all this, well, he has with the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks, if he's correctly predicted this, then in the days of the Roman Empire is when we should also see the establishment of that eternal spiritual kingdom that would never be destroyed. So let's look at Luke 3, 1 and 2. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturion, of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, why did I read all that? Because I want you to look at the titles that are in that verse. As we get into the New Testament and Jesus is coming onto the scene, guess what we find the time period is in? The days of the Roman Empire. Who was Caesar ruler of? Rome. And so it's in the days of the Roman Empire, just like Daniel predicted, that Jesus was gonna come onto the scene and the church has established the eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed, and that's a whole other discussion that we could have. But exactly what Daniel prophesied is come to pass. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. What time? What time is fulfilled? The time that all the Old Testament prophets, including Daniel in Daniel 2 and verse 44, was talking about when he said, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And Jesus says, look, this is it. This is the time that was prophesied of. It's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand, about to happen, okay? So Daniel, great prophecy. If you're a skeptic of the Bible, you're gonna look at, okay, how can we disprove this and show that Daniel really didn't have foreknowledge of any of the events? Well, you gotta date the book after the Roman empire comes onto the scene. That's what you have to do. Because if you date it anytime before Rome, then Daniel's prophetic and his prophecies are true. And so that's exactly what the skeptics will do. Now, Daniel lived during the 6th century B.C. He wrote the book at some point, probably about 600 to 536 B.C. Uh, We talked about the fact that Daniel was taken captive by the Babylonians as a young man, but he would become an important official during both Babylonian and Persian rule. Now, due to the prophetic nature of the book, critics will attempt to place the date around 164. And if you recall, 168 to 164 B.C., that's when that transition from Greeks to the Romans is taking place. So if you say the book of Daniel wasn't read until 164, it's history. It's not prophecy, it's history, okay? So what we've got to be able to do is look into the evidence and say, was Daniel written in 164 after all this already came to pass or was it written before? That's the primary question we want to answer. So we talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls last time. There's a the Dead Sea Scroll fr- uh, fragment uh, labeled 4Q Florilegium, which is dated approximately 300 to 100 BC. And it contained this quote, which written in the book of Daniel the prophet. All right, so in the Dead Sea Scroll Discoveries, we've got an ancient document that's somewhere between 300 to 100 BC, and it's talking about the book. It's talking about Daniel the prophet and what he wrote. All right, so so think with me here for just a second. If it was written in 300 BC, that's before the 164 date, right? And we've already proven that Daniel's, he's, he exists. Obviously, his book exists just by this, and it's before that 164 date, and so we know that Daniel truly was a book of prophecy. And you say, well, maybe it was 100 BC. Maybe this fragment was at the the back end of that and 164 has already passed by. Even if that's the case, you're having to assume that in 64 years, the book was written in 164, we get to 100 BC, that there are priests in the Jewish religion that are writing about this book, believing that it is an ancient prophetic book. 64 years, is that enough time? for a false, falsely written book that's pretending to be 500 years older than it is to make the priests of that religion believe that it has existed all this time, I would submit that that is a much crazier alternative viewpoint than to simply say it existed before 164. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Jesus quoted out of the Septuagint, okay? It was dated between 280 and 180 BC. Guess what it contains? The Book of Daniel. And this is dated before that 164 date. Book of Daniel existed. That's verifiable external evidence. It is there before 164 BC. And Ezekiel, who wrote around 593 BC, he was somewhat of a contemporary of Daniel himself, wrote this in his book, though these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job were in it. They should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Now it's interesting if Daniel didn't really live in 500 to 600 BC, never really wrote. It was a book that was written in 164, pretending to be this ancient prophet, that Ezekiel in 593 is mentioning his contemporary Daniel and the things that he did. The things that we also have recorded in the book of Daniel. And so there are multiple sources that show the book of Daniel existed prior to 164 BC. And if that's true, then I would ask us to reason together and say, how is it possible that Daniel knew these worldwide events that were going to come to pass and the correct succession of these four kingdoms and the exact time frame when Jesus was gonna come onto the scene? How in the world could he know that unless God told him? Look at another one. There's a prophecy that Ezekiel makes I want to share with you. It's a prophecy against a city called Tyre. Ezekiel's going to prophesy in about 587 BC that the mighty Phoenician city of Tyre would be destroyed. Now I want to tell you a little bit about Tyre. Tyre was a city that was comprised of both an island and a mainland area. The city um, existed on both of these, so both the island and the coast. Uh, This city was um, was one of the many cities, as you look through those Old Testament books of prophecy, that God used prophets to cry out and speak out against because of their evildoing and their, uh, their actions. And so Isaiah, through God's, uh, through God's inspiration, is going to write this prophecy about Tyre. He's going to predict five very specific things, and we're going to walk through these quickly one by one. So he predicts uh, that Tyre is going to be decimated by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that many other nations are then going to come against the city and utterly destroy it, that the debris of the city would be thrown into the ocean. Now, I want you to pay attention to that one. That one's a very random, specific, the rubble of the city is going to be thrown into the ocean, all right? Specific prophecy or prediction, that fishermen are going to come there to lay their nets and that this Phoenician city would never be destroyed after its utter destruction. So I want to read the prophecy with you. Rebuilt. What did I say? Okay, yes, thank you. Um, So Ezekiel 26 is where we actually find this prophecy. So Ezekiel 26 in verse 3 says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and will cause many nations to come up against thee. Notice he's saying many nations are going to come up against you as the sea causeth his waves to come up. Verse 7, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings from the north, with horses and chariots and horsemen and companies and much people. He shall slay with the sword thy daughters In the field, all right? So many nations are going to come against Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come slay a bunch of people and and wreak some destruction. And then verse 12, they shall make a spoil of thy riches and make a prey of thy merchandise and they shall break down thy walls and destroy thy pleasant houses and they they shall lay thy stones and thy timber and thy dust in the midst of the water. There's the throwing the rubble of the city into the ocean. And verse 14, I will make thee like the top of a rock. Thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built no more for the lord for i the lord have spoken it saith the lord god okay so there's the five elements of the prophecy many nations are going to come upon it nebuchadnezzar is going to wreak destruction the, s- the rubble of the city is going to be thrown into the ocean it's going to be a place for fishermen to come lay their nets and it's never going to be rebuilt all right so one thing i want you to notice as well as we go through this real quick but you to notice the pronoun change cuz we're about to read an argument from a skeptic that says, Nebuchadnezzar attacks the city, he doesn't destroy it all, therefore, Ezekiel's prophecy is wrong. And I want you to notice the pronouns. So, he starts by saying, many nations are going to come against the city. Then he talks specifically about Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he shall slay with the sword thy daughters in the field. He, alright? By the time you get to verse 12, which talks about the utter destruction of Tyre, it's not saying he anymore, it's saying They, referring back to the many nations that are going to come against Tyre, they shall lay thy stones and thy timber and thy dust in the midst of the water. Okay, so that's important as we go through here. So part one of this prophecy is that Tyre would be decimated by Nebuchadnezzar. Does that happen? Yes, history records it. 573, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the mainland city of Tyre. Many of the refugees of the city sailed to the island, and the island city of Tyre remained intact. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He destroys the coastal part, but the island part's still there. The refugees go over there. So Tyre itself on the island still exists. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't destroy it all. Now, Mr. Uh, uh, Till, who we started this sermon off with, reading his uh, quote about prophecy in that uh, in, in one of his articles, he writes Nebuchadnezzar did capture the mainland suburb of Tyre, but he never succeeded in taking the island part, which was the seat of Tyrian grandeur. That being so, it can hardly be said that Nebuchadnezzar wreaked the total havoc on Tyre that Ezekiel uh, vituperatively predicted in the passages cited, okay? So in other words, he's dismissing this and saying Ezekiel's prophecy was wrong because Nebuchadnezzar did not utterly destroy it like was prophesied. Well, we already showed the pronouns changed. It didn't say Nebuchadnezzar was gonna do all that. It said there's many nations that are gonna do that and take part in that. So what do we see? Well, in 392 BC, Tyre was involved in the war which arose between the Persians and Evagoras of Cyprus in which the king of Egypt, took Tyre by assault. So there's another war, another battle that Tyre's involved in. And then in 332 BC, Alexander the Great, as Greece is coming onto the scene and taking over, he besieges the island city of Tyre and crushed it. Now we see this source comes from Wallace B. Fleming, the history of Tyre. He's got a great last name, very trustworthy, so I think we can believe what it is that he's writing. Uh, No, so history records that Alexander the Great comes through 332, and he's gonna actually utterly destroy the island. Now he does that in part by fulfilling the third part of Ezekiel's prophecy, which is the fascinating part to me. So Diodorus, a historian, says immediately he demolished what was called Old Tyre. That's the part of the city that existed on the coast, on the mainland. And he set many tens of thousands of men to work carrying stones to construct a mole or a causeway. Now, Alexander had a problem. He wanted to destroy Tyre, but he couldn't get his siege weaponry over to the island. And he was trying to figure out a way to do that, and he had a brilliant idea, something that hadn't happened in the history of warfare up to that point. He said, I'm going to take all this rubble that's here from the mainland, I'm going to throw it all into the coast between here and the island, and I'm going to build a causeway, and I'm going to bring all my siege weapons across, and we're going to take this island. And that's exactly what he did. Now, in former times, Fleming says, the city had shown herself well-nigh impregnable that Alexander's method of attack was not anticipated is not strange, for there was no precedent for it in the annals of warfare. So this is an important point. Ezekiel's prophesying some random thing that the rubble from the city is going to be thrown in the ocean. That's very specific. Now, this particular wartime strategy had never been used before. Alexander the Great has this great idea, I'm going to build a causeway. He uses the rubble of the city to do that. He throws it into the ocean. He fulfills the prophecy of Ezekiel. Now, how in the world could Ezekiel have known that that could even possibly have happened if that's never been done before and if it wasn't God that had told him. Now number, uh, or here's another source here that talks about Tyre. Tyre's 30,000 inhabitants were either massacred or sold into slavery and the city was destroyed by Alexander in his rage at their having defied him for so long. And it is at this point when Alexander the Great takes the island of Tyre that he utterly destroys the city. Fulfilling the prophecy that many different nations, including Nebuchadnezzar, would come upon it and destroy it. Now, fishermen would come there to lay their nets. This is the weakest part of the prophecy, just simply because there's not a lot of ancient sources that talk about the fishing that specifically went on at tire. But there are some more recent ones. Dr. Fleming mentioned several travelogues from 1697, in which visitors to this area saw only a poor few wretches subsisting chiefly upon fishing, And then Volney, an 18th century French historian, said the whole village of Tyre contains only 50 or 60 poor families who live obscurely on the produce of their little and trifling fishery. It's an area of fish. It's a coastal area. So it makes sense that that would be a place where fishermen would come. And then the last part of this prophecy is that that city would never be rebuilt. Now, if you go look on your Google Maps right now, what you're going to find is in this same area, there's a city named Tyre that exists in this area. So it's real easy to look at that and go, it's obviously been rebuilt. So the prophecy's wrong. Ezekiel wasn't right. But here's what I want you to recognize and know. Uncovered remains are from the post-Phoenician, Greco-Roman, Crusader, Arab, and Byzantine times. Any traces of the Phoenician city were either destroyed long ago or remain buried under today's city. And then the Columbia Encyclopedia says, the principal ruins of the city today are those of buildings erected by the Crusaders, any left by the Phoenicians, lie underneath the present town. Here's the reality. Over the last 2,000, 2,500 years, there have been different groups of people that have come into that area and they have established villages or towns or cities. And recently in Lebanon, there is a city that took that name Tyre that's in this same region. But it's not the Phoenician city. It's not the people that God was prophesying against. God was using Tyre, the city, to represent the people. You think God really had it against the, the walls and the buildings and the, the fences? That's what he was against? He was against the people that existed in that city, and he utterly destroyed them uh, using Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander and others. And that city, that people, was never rebuilt, and they never came back. And the, even the remains now that can be found in that area these historians are telling us aren't, don't even come from the Phoenician city. I mean, they're the remains of cities that were built on top of, on top of that area, um, but that Phoenician city has never come back. So throughout history, several different nations have inhabited and built cities in the area, but that city that God prophesied against through Ezekiel remains buried under sand and sea. Last thing that I wanna share with you this evening is some prophecies about Christ. Probably our most important prophecies to look at related to our savior. What I wanna to do tonight with this is to show you the fulfillment both in scripture and outside of scripture of a few of the prophecies that were made about Jesus. So first, there's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35. And first, let's, let's start off by saying this. All of these Old Testament books, we've talked a lot about dates, right? Because that's, a, that's the argument that the skeptic will go to to try to show that it wasn't written when it said it was written, to try to, to prove that it wasn't really prophecy all of these Old Testament passages were written before Jesus existed. Okay, so let's, let's get out of that, that out of the way to start. And everyone will agree, all of these Old Testament Hebrew books were written before the days of Jesus Christ, okay? So we know if they have prophesied something correctly about Jesus, and it really happened, that it is truly prophecy and not history. So Isaiah prophesied this about the coming savior, that he would perform miracles. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an hart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. Isaiah is talking about this coming Messiah and Savior and King that's going to perform miracles that allow the blind to see, and the deaf to hear, and the lame to be able to walk again, and so on and so forth. Okay? Now we know from the New Testament this happens. And there's a lot of scriptures we could throw up here to show that. Matthew 15 and verse 30, great multitudes came into him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. All right, so exactly what Isaiah predicted, Matthew is recording here, really happened. Jesus came onto the scene, and he was healing people just as Isaiah prophesied. All right, but we stop there, and we go, all right, it's a bit of circular reasoning, though, right? We're using the Bible to prove the Bible, which, if you're a skeptic of the Bible, proves nothing at all. So let's look outside the Bible. Are there external sources that show that Jesus performed miracles? Yes, there are. I want to show them to you. Celsus, 175 AD. He's a Greek philosopher and opponent of Christianity. And I want you to know through this section primarily, I'm going to be using hostile witnesses. I'm going to be using people that are anti Christianity to show that Jesus really did do the things that he did. So Celsus, he's an opponent of Christianity. He says, being thus driven away by her husband, And wandering about in disgrace, she gave birth, talking about Mary, to Jesus, a bastard. Jesus, on account of his poverty, was hired out to go to Egypt. While there, he acquired certain magical powers, which Egyptians pride themselves on possessing. He returned home highly elated at possessing these powers, and on the strength of them, gave himself out to be a god. Now, let's think this through, okay? Celsus does not want to prove that Jesus really is Jesus, really is Christ, really is a god. So he's explaining away the miraculous things that Jesus did. And he says, well, Jesus really is not the son of God. He went to Egypt. And in Egypt, he was able to acquire these magical powers and then come back. And on the strength of them, on the strength of what? The magical powers that he had acquired in Egypt, he gave himself out to be a God. He made himself out to appear like he was God because of the great and wonderful things that he was able to do. Now, first thing that I just want to notice He's not dismissing the fact that Jesus did great and wonderful, amazing things. You know, if Jesus really didn't do miracles, it'd be real easy for opponents of Christianity to just say, it's all lies. It's all lies. They made it all up. There's no record or evidence Jesus ever really healed anybody. And that's what Celsus could have written, but he didn't. He said, well, yeah, some really amazing things happened, but he's not the son of God. He acquired magical powers from Egypt and then... But by coming up with an alternative reason... For Jesus being able to do those things, he's admitting that Jesus did those things. There's another one, the Babylonian Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish uh, rabbinical writings compiled between 70 and 500 AD. This passage specifically dates to about 70 to 200 AD, so a little bit after Christ. Now remember, this is the Jews, who do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, they are anti-Jesus being the Christ, said he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Even the Jews who didn't want to believe that Jesus was the Christ recognized he had some sort of power. He was doing something. He was practicing sorcery. He had some sort of dark magic or whatever it was that enabled him to do this. And we recall even in the New Testament, they accused him of being from Satan and having Satan's power essentially, being Beelzebub. And that's when he talks about a house divided against itself can not stand and all that. The reality is even the Jews that didn't want Jesus to be Christ recognized he did some amazing things. So I want you to know that there's a prophecy that Isaiah made about Jesus performing miracles and healing people and even the opponents of Christianity can't deny that some of those spectacular things happened. The second prophecy in Zechariah 9 verse 9 says that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a fold, a, a colt, excuse me, the foal of an ass. Now in Matthew 21, verse 6, we see this fulfilled. The disciples went, they did as Jesus commanded, they brought the ass, the colt, they put on them their clothes, and set him thereon. The multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So again, we see a fulfillment in Matthew of what Zechariah prophesied about long before the days of Christ. All right, that's interesting, but are there external sources that show that this actually happened? Yes, there are. The Toledot Yeshu, which is an anti-Christian, again, a hostile witness, medieval Jewish retelling of the life of Jesus, uh, which contains a determined effort to explain away the miracles of Jesus and deny the virgin birth, said this, that year the Passover came on a Sabbath day. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, accompanied by his disciples, Yeshu is Jesus, came to Jerusalem riding upon an ass. Many bowed down before him. Now that seems and may seem like an insignificant part of the story, but this is a purposeful retelling of Jesus' life to try to claim that he's not the Messiah. And inside it, they claim and include that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, just like Zechariah prophesied that the Savior would. So even an anti-Christian, anti-Jesus source acknowledges that this really happened. Let's look at a third one. Psalm 22, verse 14, there's a prophecy here about the crucifixion of Jesus. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potstrad and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands. And my feet. Now, we want to note that as David wrote this, Psalm 22, crucifixion, Roman crucifixion, putting nails in hands and feet, that didn't exist. And so this prophecy about piercing hands and feet is interesting in particular because this is foreshadowing something that was to come that David should have had no knowledge or ability to predict was going to happen. But it's exactly what we see happens to Jesus. Matthew 27:35, they crucified him, that Roman crucifixion. John 20:25, 20, he said to them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails. That's Thomas, doubting Thomas, as we heard about on, on Sunday, uh, that is saying, I wanna see the nail prints, right? In his hands, I wanna be able to put my hand into his side. And so they pierced his hands and his feet. We see that in the New Testament, but again, that's the Bible proving the Bible. So let's look outside. The Bab- uh, Babylonian uh, Talmud, uh, said that's that Jewish collection of rabbinical writings, says on the eve of the Passover, Yeshua Jesus was hanged. Okay, talking about that Roman crucifixion. Cornelius Tacitus, the Roman historian, said he suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, referencing the crucifixion that took place in Jesus. And Phlegon, the historian, who again is a, another hostile witness, not a Christian, uh, quoted by Origen, who is a biblical scholar and Christian apologist, But Phlegon the historian said this, in the time of Tiberius Caesar, in whose reign Jesus appeared to have been crucified, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by nails. So I just want us to recognize there are external sources that are hostile to Christianity and Jesus that are admitting and confirming Jesus was crucified. Just like David prophesied in Psalm 22 when he said they pierced his hands and his feet. And that's exactly what we see happen to Jesus, both inside and outside of the scriptures. Last one, prophesied that Jesus would be resurrected from the grave. Psalm 16, 9 and 10, therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoiceth. my flesh shall also rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. So there's a prophecy that this Savior who would give his life through that crucifixion would not stay dead, but would rise from the grave. And that's exactly what we see. Acts 13, 36, David, after he had served his own generations by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid into his fathers and saw corruption. But he, Jesus, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. So we see in the New Testament, the fulfillment of that prophecy in Psalm 16, that Jesus was resurrected from the grave and did not stay dead. But are there evidences outside of the Bible that show that that resurrection really happened? Yes, there are. And there's more than we could even talk about tonight. I'm just gonna share three of them with you. There's a man by the name of uh, William Lane Craig. He's a philosopher, professor, author, and Christian apologist. So this is not a hostile source. Uh, He's a Christian apologist. But he says, The simple fact that the Christian fellowship founded on belief in Jesus' resurrection came into existence and flourished in the very city where he was executed and buried is powerful evidence for the historicity of the empty tomb. And his point is this. If it was all fake and Jesus really did stay dead and the disciples were going to lie about it and try to create this false religion on pretending that he had been resurrected, it would have been much easier to go to a different city that didn't know about Jesus, hadn't just crucified him, didn't know exactly where the body was buried, and start it there. But instead, Christianity started in the very, very city where very publicly Jesus had just been crucified and all the Jews or the Romans would have had to do was go, false. His body's right there. And they couldn't. They couldn't and Christianity flourished because the grave was empty. Justin Martyr in 165, he is uh, debating with Jews on this empty tomb, and he quotes this Jewish letter in which the Jews are given a reasoning for why the tomb was empty. The Jews said, Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb. Now, if you recall from the New Testament, it's exactly what the Jews feared would happen That's why they went to Pilate, asked Pilate to put soldiers in front of the tomb, to seal it with the Roman mark, which all happened. And yet still, later on, the Jews are going, well, the disciples came by and they stole his body. You know what they're doing when making that excuse? What are they confirming? There's no body in that tomb. It's empty. The tomb's empty. And the Jews knew it. And so do the scholars today. Jacob Kramer, a New Testament critic who has specialized in the study of the resurrection, said, by far most exegetes hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. There is not a scholar that is worth their salt that will make the argument that Jesus' body was still there. It just all the evidence says it wasn't. There was no more body in that tomb. Now the question becomes, how did it get empty? Did his disciples steal it? Well, if they did, they committed an act that got them all killed, persecuted. And what motivation, what reason, if Jesus really wasn't the Messiah they hoped that he would be, if he really had stayed dead, why would they risk life and limb, everything, to pretend that he had risen? Did the Jews take his body? That didn't make sense. They wanted his body to be there to be able to prove he was dead and stayed dead. Did the Romans remove his body for some reason? Well, they're the ones that were guarding it. I don't know why. The reality is there is no suspect that makes sense that could have taken the body, not to mention the Roman soldiers that are there guarding it. You know what does make sense? The story we find in the New Testament. That an angel came and appeared, that stone was rolled away, and three days after being put to death, Jesus rose from that grave. And that's why the tomb was empty. And that's why the Jews had to make excuses. And that's why Christianity flourished in the very city that Jesus died. And that's why scholars today will agree the tomb was empty because he was resurrected. Did you know there are about 60 major prophecies of Christ and about 300 in all? And as you go through, many of these can be backed up by the historical, archaeological sources that I've used for these four. If the Old Testament writers did not receive supernatural inspiration from God, I ask you, how is it possible for Jesus to have so perfectly fulfilled their predictions and their prophecies? Well, there are some people that would say he just got lucky. He just got lucky and took advantage of a situation. And maybe he just happened to be born in the right place, born to the right tribe. He, he managed to acquire some kind of power to trick people into thinking he was doing miracles. Uh, the, you know, people did steal the body later, and maybe it's just all fake and all false, and Jesus just got lucky. Well, the statistics say that there's a one in 100 quadrillion chance that somebody by chance could fulfill even eight of the 300 or so prophecies that Jesus does fulfill. But the reality is to make that argument that Jesus just got lucky and took advantage of a situation and he's not really the son of God doesn't make sense. I would submit to you tonight that the reason why Jesus is able to fulfill these, because he is the son of God, because those writers that wrote about him hundreds of years before wrote what they knew because God had told it to them. And we see that in the fulfillment of that in Jesus. The illustration for this number goes like this. If you've not heard it, if you filled the state of Texas, which is a very big state, by the way, two feet deep with silver dollars, and you took a permanent marker and marked an X on one of those silver dollars, threw it in the middle of it, mixed the whole thing around, blindfolded a guy, sent him out and said, pick the one with the X on it in your first try. That's the chances someone would have of accidentally fulfilling those eight prophecies. Charles Briggs, a distinguished Hebrew scholar, said, In Jesus of Nazareth, the key of the messianic prophecy of the Old Testament has been found. All its phases find their realization in his unique personality, his unique work, his unique kingdom. The Messiah of prophecy appears in the Messiah of history. History backs up what these prophets have said all along. R.C. Sproul wrote, The very dimension of the sheer fulfillment of prophecy of the Old Testament scriptures should be enough to convince anyone that we are dealing with a supernatural piece of literature. And Psalm 147, verse five says, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And so tonight, as we wrap up uh, this topic, this part two, and we've asked the question, is the Bible really prophetic? I hope that you can agree with me tonight that the evidence overwhelmingly says, yes, it is. And if the Bible truly is prophetic, could it really have just been written by mere man? or does it not make more sense to us that God is the true author? If you're here tonight and you're not a member of Christ's kingdom, we've talked about that kingdom some today. Daniel prophesied about it. That kingdom has been established. It's here, it's in existence. Jesus offers you a welcome into that kingdom tonight. He's made it very, very simple. He just asks that you believe on him as the son of God, that you're willing to confess that belief before men, that you're willing to repent, to change from your life of sin, to serve him and to be baptized in water, having your sins washed away by the blood of Christ. If we can help you to do that tonight, or help you with any other need that you have, we ask that you'd come forward, sit in a front pew, as we stand and sing. Thanks for joining our Sermon Series podcast today. For more, check us out on YouTube, or come worship with us on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings.